from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Before the show gets rolling, let me jump in here to say that this is me, Stephen Lacey. I am not an AI-trained voice yet, although this morning I did wake up and listen to a full, raunchy Tom Brady stand-up comedy special generated entirely by AI. It was actually really funny, and it's yet another reminder that our culture is about to get flipped upside down by astonishingly good artificial intelligence. And that's why we held a live episode of The Carbon Copy last week at Greentown Labs on AI and digital climate tech and the brave new world that is opening up in energy. We're going to play that conversation for you this week. Now, I didn't get AI Tom Brady to join us for the conversation, but we did have a little fun on our own with AI, and I did manage to pull together some of the top minds in the space. So it was a really helpful level-setting conversation, and it's the first of many we're probably going to be having on this space. That conversation's coming right up, but first, a huge thanks to Nexamp for supporting this live episode. Nexamp is leading the transformation to the new energy economy with proven solar and energy storage solutions that make clean energy more accessible for its customers and partners. Nexamp's comprehensive capabilities, including project development and acquisition, design, construction, and operations, enable clean energy savings and benefits for more individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and municipalities. Known for its industry-leading community solar platform, Nextamp is building a decarbonized energy future for all of us. Visit nextamp.com, that's N-E-X-A-M-P, nextamp.com, to learn more. And now, here's our live episode from Greentown Labs. So it's a little hard to tell these days. I don't know if I'm in an AI-created simulation. Are there human beings in this room? Can you, can you make yourselves audible? Excellent. So normally when I'm doing a live show like this, I sit down and think really carefully and use my editorial expertise to craft a narrative intro that's going to hook you all in and make you feel you know, the, the importance of the issue that we're talking about. But today, I'm going to do a little high-wire act, and I have not written anything. And I'm going to use our friend ChatGPT4 to help me write an introduction to the show. So I've got a, some prompts here, and we'll see um, if we can use an AI voice generator and ChatGPT to help introduce the show. So ChatGPT tends to respond to flattery, so we'll start there. You're Stephen Lacey, an extraordinarily talented energy podcaster who hosts a podcast called Carbon Copy. You're currently re- recording a live episode in front of a large audience at Greentown Labs in Somerville, Massachusetts. The episode is about artificial intelligence and digital climate solutions. You're speaking with Priya Donti, an AI expert, MIT assistant professor and executive director of Climate Change AI. Amy Francetic, managing general partner at the venture capital firm Buoyant Ventures and Jesse Morris, an energy expert and CEO of the Energy Web Foundation. Can you please write a dramatic and intelligent introduction for the podcast that outlines the stakes for using artificial intelligence to clean up the energy system in the style of a trailer for a thriller movie? (laughs) Let's see what it gives me. Now I'm going to dump it into my AI voice generator here. Here we go. In a world where climate change threatens the very existence of life as we know it, three experts have come together to explore the power of artificial intelligence to save our planet. 
the Carbon Copy takes you on a thrilling journey through the frontiers of AI and climate solutions, featuring the brilliant minds of Priya Dante, Amy Francetic, and Jesse Morris. As the fate of the planet hangs in the balance, these trailblazers will share their <laughs> insights and innovations, illuminating the path towards a sustainable future. Will their ideas be enough to avert disaster and create a better world for future generations? Join us for an electrifying episode of The Carbon Copy as we delve deep into the heart of the AI revolution and its potential to save the world. Get ready for a blockbuster podcast event that will leave you inspired and energized to take on the greatest challenge of our time. That's pretty good. <laughs> maybe a little too aggressive, so maybe we can do something a little lighter in the style of a romantic comedy. <laughs> Absolutely, it says. Okay, here comes the script. All right. Welcome to The Carbon Copy, the podcast that brings you the latest energy and climate news with a twist. Today's episode is all about love, the love story between artificial intelligence and the energy system. Meet our charming AI lead, who has the potential to optimize energy systems and minimize waste. Our expert panel, featuring Priya Dandi, Amy Francetic, and Jesse Morris, will help guide our hero through the ups and downs of a complicated relationship. But can AI win over the hearts of the energy industry and overcome the obstacles in their path, such as job displacement and privacy concerns? Will they find their happily ever after and create a sustainable future together? Join us for a romantic comedy that will leave you swooning and rooting for our unlikely duo. This is the carbon copy and love is in the air. Are you ready to fall in love with the future of energy? Let's find out. Pretty good. I like that one. That was That's good. pretty good. That was good. It's very impressive. I, I tried a couple prompts before this. Uh, those were some new prompts, and I'm very impressed. What do you, what do you all think? I think you still have a job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think in, a, in six months, we'll see who's taking over the, the hosting job here. Look, I, I will provide a little bit of framing here for this conversation because we are in a pretty different world now. And then I want to get some thoughts from uh, my panelists up here who are going to help frame this issue. Um, First of all, you guys have all been playing with ChatGPT4. Have you any, anybody come up with any creative energy prompts? I, I asked um, it to create a joke for me. A, oh. A climate joke for scientists. And um, here it is. Okay. Um, why don't scientists trust atoms? Why? Because they make up everything, including <laughs> climate change. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I was going to bring a list of dad jokes, but... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so I haven't outsourced my critical thinking skills to ChatGPT4 yet, but I'm going to set the stage a little bit of my own interpretation of what's happening here, and then we'll get the conversation underway. So up until about six months ago, if you'd ask people in the energy business or in climate tech, about the hottest areas of tech innovation. Artificial intelligence might have topped the list for some people, but probably wouldn't have gotten into the top five for a lot of people. And um, that's not a reflection of the capabilities or even stuff that's playing out in the field. It's mostly a reflection of our personal experience. Um, and suddenly this Cambrian explosion of large language models led by ChatGPT has suddenly hooked in hundreds of millions of users, offered mind-boggling creative capabilities that have surprised almost everyone, um, kicked off an AI arms race in the tech world and forced us to grapple with 
the very real prospect of artificial general intelligence in the not-so-distant future. I mean, we're all really starting to grapple with what that would look and sound and feel like. So today's conversation is, to some extent, a reflection of that radical shift in the public discourse, but it's about a lot more than that because there's so much more happening beyond generative AI in the energy space today. And, you know, we're going to touch on how it's being used uh, today. And we're also going to broaden beyond AI and talk about the digital layer that is necessary for decarbonizing and decentralizing the energy system. So in this conversation, we're going to kind of get beyond the gold rush mentality and we're going to talk about practical use cases and then talk about what is coming next. So you heard GPT introduce the panelists. Let's bring them back in. Um, Priya, for years, you've been talking about, you've been focused on machine learning um, to, 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 uh, as a helpful tool for climate solutions. Talk about the moment today. Like, what is different? All of a sudden, everyone is talking about it. Um, how would you characterize the sudden interest in the space? Yeah, so I'd say that um, machine learning has really in and of itself accelerated over the last several years, last decade. And this has been due to a combination of kind of widespread data availability, um, increased computational power, and also improvements in algorithms. Um, and then, of course, in parallel, the climate conversation has accelerated a lot. And I actually attribute a lot of that to um, improvements in uh, attribution science, right? When we were able to really start saying this specific event is due to climate change, I think that really kind of galvanized the public conversation. But as Stephen mentioned, kind of, you know, over the last, uh, you know, for, for a long time, people didn't put these things together. Um, and so um, I think many trends came together, but, but one thing was that um, my organization, Climate Change AI, we you know, wrote this paper called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning, where we kind of sat down, really looked at the literature and really surveyed stakeholders over, you know, several months, uh, uh, you know, and, and really tried to understand where is it that AI and machine learning can play a role. Um, and we saw a lot of different kinds of use cases, including kind of turning raw data into actionable insights. So taking satellite imagery and turning it into insights about where the solar panels are, or um, taking sensor data and using it to automatically optimize heating and cooling systems in buildings, or learning from past experiments on how to synthesize batteries and then learn using that to actually suggest what kinds of batteries could be synthesized next. And of course, we weren't the only ones to observe these use cases. I would say that this conversation, you know, really started as we saw this kind of interest in, in climate change and addressing climate change and the kind of advances in machine learning really um, coming up around the same time. And I think that years later, there's now, of course, much more interest in the space, much more investment, and I think much more urgency to really be galvanizing all the tools we have in our toolkit to address what is one of the most pressing issues of our time. Are you getting a lot more phone calls? Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about the, the different categories of artificial intelligence. Um, but Amy, let's go to you. So, so Boyan was founded to invest in a lot of different kinds of companies in the, the digital climate tech space across energy industry, agriculture, uh, circular economy. How do you define that category and where does AI fit into that? Sure, sure. So I'd like to say that I've been in the climate space long before it was fashionable and Buoyant has been investing in digital climate from our very beginning. That was our entire focus. And we're looking for digital technologies that we define as 
software, including AI, and simple hardware. So we're not investing in the hard tech, like a lot of the great things that are happening here at Greentown Labs, we're investing in simple sensors that are collecting unique data that the software can use to do a lot of the things that Priya just described. And I want to say, first of all, thank you so much for having me here, Stephen. When he called me and told me he was doing this, I don't think you even finished the description of what it was. And I just said, yes. I didn't even look at my calendar. I'm like, I have to be here for this conversation because our firm was really built to do this. And you had these amazing other folks involved. And we've been reading a lot of Priya's uh, team. Climate Change AI has done a wonderful job of researching in this space and writing about it and citing, which has been fantastic. Um, So just building on all that momentum and now seeing how much attention AI is getting, we actually have a number of companies that are using AI, and one of whom is here, um, housed in Greentown Labs. And it was our very first investment. It's a company called Raptor Maps. Uh, It was... um, Yeah! It was um, co-founded by um, two MIT grads that met at school, Nikhil and Eddie, and they're using AI in a lot of different ways. Um, namely, they're, um, they're taking footage from drones, which are robots, a type of AI, that are uh, flying over large solar systems, solar assets, and collecting data. And they use machine learning and computer vision to distill that data into useful insights that the managers and owners and operators of that equipment use to um, get a little bit better production out of the equipment. And this is really important because they've invested in this very expensive asset. And if it degrades or loses a few percentage points of production, that's uh, very costly to them. So the, um, the insights that Raptor Maps is producing, not only from the analysis of the drone footage, but now they have a full stack software solution that they're using to build a digital twin of the asset and predict production based upon information that they're gathering from all kinds of assets. So back to this idea that they're gathering large sums of data from assets around the world and using that to predict behavior on a single asset is really, really powerful. And you know, making a, a solar farm produce you know, 2 or 3% better solar production is very, very mm. meaningful. And we saw that as a really critical um, part of making solar an incredible solution towards climate change. So... Um, we're really thrilled to be working with this company, and they've been doing great, and, um, and they've been using, they were built on AI from the very beginning. So how often are you saying no to a pitch, and then that person like puts on a fake mustache, slaps AI on their pitch deck, and suddenly repitches you? Like, <laughs> are you seeing a lot of like bad pitches with AI suddenly infused? You know what? We were seeing a lot of that in the Web3 space. Okay, so when that tracks. Web3, that tracks. Okay, yeah. that's right. So Jesse's going to talk about this, and when when that was before the crash of crypto, I, I, I know that AI is here to stay. Okay, and it is so it's so fundamentally groundbreaking, and we're sitting here in one of the birthplaces of AI. I mean, Priya's going to go be a professor at MIT, where Marvin Minsky, like, you know, really was one of the godfathers of the whole practice. So I know it's here to stay. I know that Web3 is here to stay, but we saw a lot of pitches that were really artificially trying to use tokens or use crypto or use blockchain in some way that was not core to their function. And I look at, a, you know, we can, I hope, we can see through that at Buoyant. Like, and most of the companies that are pitching us, they're pitching a solution. They're not pitching, we have AI. They're saying, like Raptor Maps, we're going to help you get a better return on your investment in solar yeah. assets. 
we have another company called Real Data. We're going to help you get better production out of your land-based aquaculture. That's the pitch. Yeah. That's the pitch. And so AI is a tool. Jesse, you are uh, an energy expert, uh, formerly at RMI. You came to the blockchain Web3 space. So tell us, characterize what's happening in the Web3 space right now. I think a lot of people are sort of curious about how it's playing out and what kinds of projects you're working on. Definitely. So before I answer that, Stephen, I just want to second Amy's comment. Thank you so much for convening this, because I'd actually maybe make this conversation maybe not as important as the trailers that you played, but pretty important. From my opinion, if we don't, and the language I use about this, deploy digital infrastructure across all of these different sectors of the economy to help accelerate uh, action against climate change, we will fail. We will not address climate change in a time frame meaningly to uh, our lives and the global economy. So this layer of digital infrastructure, of which AI is a key part, thank you so much for hosting a conversation about it, because it is critical. Um, so look, on the, the Web3 and crypto of it all, um, yeah, I mean, it's been a heck of a ride. Uh, I'll put it that way. Uh, our organization, it's called Energy Web Foundation, spun out of Rocky Mountain Institute. Um, we were focused on building open source solutions to help uh, energy market participants basically deploy digital infrastructure and solve problems like Amy was talking about. We've found a few specific ways to use Web3 technology that are useful. Uh, it's not a panacea. And in fact, if I look back, um, I, I was just looking at my calendar before I got on stage. Back in 2017, I was at an event on the other side of Boston. It was an energy blockchain conference. I gave a presentation where I said, hey, everybody, we found 200 different companies out there that are energy blockchain companies, and they have all of these different use cases, yeah? And I was excited. I was on stage. I was shilling. You know, everybody get excited. This is awesome, right? How many of those companies are left today? There's 200. Five. Three. <laughs> Three, right? And of those, uh, uh, did any of them get acquired? No, right? So... Um, I offer that anecdote to say there is real value, and we'll probably get into it later on this panel, um, in terms of the ways that you can use Web3 technologies to support some of these problems energy companies are, are um, facing. But um, for me, it's, um, it's just been a journey of learning on that side. Whereas with AI, and, and I'm not an AI expert by any means, the fact that we can reach out and touch it, the fact that you're having companies pitch you and lead not with the technology, with, but with a problem they can overcome, that right there in and of itself is progress and gets me really excited. Um, so we can talk more about Web3, but long story short, from my perspective, a lot of cool stuff out there. Also a lot of not so cool stuff that is quite a bit of marketing driven hype around a certain technology. But there are companies using it in really interesting, innovative ways to solve real business problems. It's just uh, when you hear about uh, billionaires and their um, net worth plummeting 99% um, in two weeks who are running cryptocurrency exchanges, it's kind of hard to look away from that um, and actually see some of the value being created. So Priya, given that, how do we start to separate some of the froth from the real applications. Like a few years ago, you wrote a pretty seminal uh, research paper on the, the use cases for machine learning and climate solutions. And, you know, a lot has changed in the last few years, but I'm sure that there are a lot of companies um, sort of hyping this up as well. So like, how do you think about where the real use cases are? What kind of new and emerging and interesting use cases are you seeing? And, and do you see any froth uh, you know, companies that are maybe just um, potentially just using the words AI, uh, artificial intelligence, and don't actually have a good solution. 
Yeah, so I'd say there are a lot of, you know, really exciting use cases out there. So I mentioned some earlier, this idea of, you know, creating better forecasts for power system operators. Um, For example, uh, the nonprofit Open Climate Fix, they used AI and machine learning in combination, you know, with satellite imagery, historical data to um, cut the error of the forecast that National Grid, the UK power system operator, is creating by a third to a half. And this is really improving the way in which power system operators are actually operating their grids. You also see many use cases of, um, again, scientific discovery, which is an example I gave earlier. So, for example, the startup AIonics is using AI to actually analyze um, when I am, you know, trying to synthesize a battery for energy or for transport or for something else. These are going to have different properties from each other. But... And I can only synthesize so many batteries. So can I somehow learn from the success or failures of my past experiments in order to better understand both what battery I should try to synthesize next that might be more successful or where there's a part of the search space that I should learn more about in order to then inform my future experiments. So there are lots of use cases like this. I would say that kind of if you can get past a couple of key questions, right? So what is the actual problem that's being solved, right? Fundamental, not sort of what technology is solving it, but what is the fundamental problem that's being solved? Um, I think as the others mentioned, this is a key aspect. But then why AI, right? Why not an alternative? Um, what is, what's something that could go wrong? Are there biases? Are there, you know, uh, negative consequences that could be exacerbated? I think really asking those questions and really exploring the alternatives space can give a lot of clarity on why is it that you're pursuing AI in a particular place. And in some sense, I think equipped with that knowledge, if people are really coming into it in a way that's really informed by the actual potential and the actual limitations of the technology and are really evaluating it from that lens rather than getting swept up by the hype, I'm not actually as worried about that aspect. What I am more worried about is um, in companies that are um, maybe were not initially climate driven and are using AI as a mechanism to kind of bring themselves back into the cycle and sort of repitch themselves as a climate change plus AI company. For example, some companies that were, you know, canonically trying to optimize oil and gas assets just, you know, to make oil and gas companies more money, not necessarily. There are ways you can kind of work in that space in ways that are nuanced and move us towards climate goals, but that wasn't their angle. And now see the opportunity to say, oh, well, we were doing something with data. So now we're AI driven and we're also doing climate stuff. And they have the kind of industry experience and expertise and, you know, the ability to really sell the answers to those questions that I just mentioned, but um, where they're coming in with different motivations. So I think that's actually really what I'm most worried about, AI being used for greenwashing in this very particular way. Hmm. But let me add one thing to the, adding to that, like not only that they're solving a problem that matters, but they're solving a problem that somebody will pay for. That's a really critical piece for a startup company. It's wonderful if you can do something very novel that's really, really interesting, but is that a consulting business or is that a nonprofit? Is it really a solution that is very financially meaningful to a business? And they, you know, by them buying your solution, it's going to improve their profitability. It's going to save them enormous amount of money. It's going to streamline something very complicated or make safe something very unsafe in their business. Those are the kinds of things that somebody will pay for. And we have a company called Real Data that is using AI to help fish farmers that are producing fish in land-based aquaculture um, reduce the cost of fish feed 
and um, improve the, the growth of the fish so that they can produce more fish. And this is really important from a climate standpoint because we've overfished the oceans. And I know that's a very um, potent reality here in New England. And a lot of the, farm, the, the, fish, the fishermen here in New England are experiencing this. And then the way we grow fish in the ocean now off the coast is very environmentally damaging. So we're going to have to find new ways to produce fish to feed the world. And it's an amazing source of food and protein for so many people. And so if you can reduce the cost of food for the, um, the folks that are producing the fish, if you can help them figure out how to help those fish grow faster, then you can get enormous amount of profitability by using AI. And that's this company is using this with cameras and machine learning to analyze this and help the, um, the fish producers. I think the business piece is a, another, again, to juxtapose AI and potentially what's happening now with Web3 and crypto. Um, in my experience, there were very few Web3 or crypto companies that were selling a solution to enterprises to solve a specific problem. There was a lot of development and activity and really cool technology being built, but it's typically one set of innovators building innovative technology for the other group. This is where a lot of the experimentation in like decentralized finance and stuff is happening. But there are very few instances of a big business saying, that's cool, I'm gonna write a check to buy your product, right? So one of the cool things that I'm now seeing with AI um, is that there are companies that will write those checks. I mean, for example, I almost feel like I'm late to that AI party um, before this panel one of the solutions that we've brought to life with a number of different electric utilities in Australia, one of the partners to that solution was constructing digital twins of the distribution network because, shocker, distribution utilities sometimes don't even know where transformers and overhead lines are. They don't even have a map of that. And then second, uh, constructing something called operating envelopes for those. So an operating envelope basically looks at every single endpoint on a distribution network and then basically says, hey, every five minutes, here is how much power you can export or how much you can take off of the grid uh, in order to maintain it, which is a far better way of running distribution networks instead of saying, I have a new solar system. Oh, now the utility is telling me I need to wait for three months to put it on my roof. So there are companies that I didn't even know they were using AI to construct those um, digital twins, to construct those operating envelopes, and they're being used in a production environment today and utilities are writing checks for them. Um, one thing I'll jump in, though, I think, is that um, I agree about this, like, will somebody use it? Um, and in, in, that, in the context of, uh, you know, for-profit, a startup, will somebody buy it? Is, that, I think, the correct, like, instantiation of that? Or am I able to make the solution sustainable from an organizational sustainability perspective, from a scale perspective? But I will say that I think that if we kind of you know, also should be bringing in these kinds of solutions and technologies in public interest applications in cases where it may not be make sense, right, for a for-profit entity to be the one taking forward a particular idea where there may be a use case for an independent entity, a nonprofit, a government, somebody else to take that forward. And an example there is, for example, this um, coalition of organizations called Climate Trace, which uses AI on the ground sensor data, satellite imagery to provide an independent uh, inventory of greenhouse gas emissions from different kind of emitting, uh, you know, but not just at the country level, but at the asset level around the world. And the reason they're doing this is because there are so many entities that have, you know, entrenched interests or reasons that they don't want this emissions inventory to actually be accurate, right? So as, for example, governmental entities are negotiating emissions-related agreements at the UN Climate Change Conference, if an emissions inventory estimate would make them look bad, they don't necessarily want that out there. If a specific entity wants to be able to underreport or cheat on their emissions, they don't want an independent estimate out there. Um, 
And if they're, you know, that is a setting where maybe having that kind of independent objective um, public interest bent, it's not necessarily that anybody is paying for that. Like a lot of people hate that it exists in some sense, but it's something really important to move the conversation forward. So I agree, thinking it just about who is the user and how do I make this sustainable so that I'm not just, you know, creating something that then never scales, never has a use case down the line is, I think, kind of the core underlying thing there. We are going to hit the pause button here for just a moment. Coming up, we'll dig deeper into large language models and we'll have a little bit more fun with ChatGPT. First, a word about Nexamp. Nexamp was launched in 2007 by two U.S. Army veterans who returned from serving overseas, and they were looking to reduce our nation's reliance on foreign energy sources. Now, today, it's a national leader in distributed solar and energy storage. One of the reasons Nexamp is unique in the market is its commitment to managing the entire process in-house, from project development to acquisition to design, construction, operations. Every stage is managed by Nexamp employees. The company has a portfolio of nearly a gigawatt of generating capacity. It's got another two gigawatts in development or under construction. And with a growing team of nearly 450 team members and projects from Maine to Hawaii, the company is making decarbonization easy and accessible for generations to come. Learn more about how you can leverage the firm's expertise and skills at nexamp.com. That's N-E-X-A-M-P, nexamp.com. Can we talk about the large language models for a moment? Um, they can be used for novelties, like we saw this evening, but they can be used for powerful things like anything from establishing a communication strategy or the foundation of a communication strategy to actually coding. So what should companies in this space be thinking about the potential for integrating uh, large language models into their business processes or potentially using it to help create the foundation of new products. The connective tissue between the solutions and the customer is one great place to do this. So when if you've got a, a piece of software and it has to integrate with somebody's ERP system, like an SAP or an Oracle system, how do you connect those? And that's a great use of software building tools related to ChatGPT. Or like, I'm really interested what Bloomberg is going to do. They just announced they have this um, chat GPT version that they're going to start to integrate into their solution on their terminals to um, try to analyze and disclose and reveal kind of to what you said. Of course, they're going to ask people to pay for it, right? Because it's Bloomberg. It's going to cost you $25,000 a year for a subscription. But they want this to be able to, to identify risk that people have in their investment portfolio. So instead of factoring in the whole internet, they're just factoring in all their financial data. And Exactly. So they're going to look at climate risk and climate data, this massive trove of weather and climate data that we have that now says that asset is at risk for flood, mm. that asset is at risk for wildfire. And then they can also marry that with all of the financial information and the reports that corporations must produce as part of their reporting to their investors. And they can perform that level of analysis. And that's what they're aiming to do. This is what they're saying they're aiming to do, is to be able to then say, this company has this risk. And we saw this very much when we were looking at, we did some foundational research on climate risk intelligence that kind of helped establish our fund and one of the things we were looking at. And we talked to customers, a lot of customers um, who had risk. 
And, um, and we knew these disclosures and this regulation was coming because we could see what was happening in Europe. And we could see that this pressure that was being placed globally on big investors to try to disclose this was gaining momentum in the U.S., even though right now we have this backlash and a lot of folks are trying to say, oh, no, no, ESG is bad and woke. Like, it's coming. It's coming. It's still coming. But the thing that um, we heard from the customers is they didn't want to just be told about the risk. They wanted a solution. It wasn't good enough to say, ring the alarm bells, you have a problem. Just to your point, that's, that's maybe hard to deal with. Okay, now they need a solution. Now they, so we started looking, instead of looking at all the companies that were measuring and disclosing risk, we started looking for solutions. And we invested in a company that has a parametric flood insurance solution called Flood Flash because they were presenting an economic, a financial solution to that risk. So I think you kind of, you know, you, thinking about what people will pay for, I thought that they will pay for that. If somebody rings the alarm bells and, you know, Bloomberg starts to say this or one of your nonprofits discloses this or Flood, you know, First Street Foundation, which is an amazing um, trove of data that um, has used hydrology data and climate data to, to um, describe flood risk around the world. You can put your address in and it's like really powerful. And that's a nonprofit. But again, like, what do you do with that risk? Now you have to take some action. And that's where I think some of these solutions where startups can be very, very um, important. I really hope that these large language models um, help incumbent energy companies. If we, if we kind of uh, truncate climate and just talk about the grid for a moment, because electrification and decarbonizing the grid is one of the biggest pillars of energy transition more generally. Um, I really hope the large language models will help individual people who are maybe um, not digital natives uh, to really just to de-risk some of this stuff, right? I mean, right now, if you work in an information technology at a, a transmission system operator in Europe or an independent system operator in the U.S. or a distribution utility, typically those departments have been somewhat underfunded. They're not attracting a lot of different talent. There aren't reams of software engineers sitting within most of our electric utilities. So if some of the digital solutions being offered to utilities right now, whether it's, hey, we can construct a digital twin for you, or, hey, um, we can construct a solution for you to make it possible for you to interact with distributed energy resources on your system. If the pitch was, okay, now we have to do a six-month IT project, a deep integration with your existing systems. we got to train all your staff to use it. Honestly, it's going to be kind of painful. And it says, actually, we have some text-to-software models that make it much easier for your people to configure a solution and deploy it. That would be transformative just to make it easier for some of these solutions to be deployed. We're trying that now. Um, my, I was on the line with my CTO the other day, and we are now making a tool so that some of our customers, which are these electric utilities, can use chatbots to configure um, software that lets them communicate with DER and procure services from them. Just use a chatbot to say, I want to spin up a demand response program to procure services uh, of these qualities and these characteristics. Here's how we're thinking about uh, configuring the compensation mechanism. Here are some other toggles. So, I mean, we haven't figured it out yet. It's going to take us as a product organization a while to figure it out. But if large language models can make it easier for incumbents to adopt these digital technologies, that would be a huge win. How about the interconnection queue? To your point, Jesse, if they could figure out how to speed up the wait list for all of the wind and solar projects that are waiting to be evaluated by um, all the RSOs. I mean, that, that we need this. We need them to kind of speed it up. I mean, if we want to talk about problems facing the energy transition right now, that's huge. There's a report out today 
um, I it was one of the national labs, I believe, published it, two terawatts of backlogs, solar, wind, hydro, batteries, in interconnection backlogs, two terawatts. And I think that's just transmission level. We're not even talking about distribution stuff, which people tend to ignore. That's insane. So how can all of these different tools come together to help unblock that, to transform the way that we interconnect renewables? These are the kinds of solutions that I hope we see in the that next couple of years. That would be game changing. Um, maybe stepping back though to maybe, I think, I think a lot of those solutions sound really, really important and really cool. But as a maybe thinking back to this barometer to evaluate whether an application kind of makes sense, I think a lot of these make sense because they uh, satisfy this key property, which is something that is hard to do, but easy to verify. So ChatGPT and other generative models, what they're really doing is kind of learning some big probability distribution over text or over images in the case of image models, and they're drawing from it. And so what that means is that there isn't necessarily kind of truth inherent in that or accuracy inherent in that. And people who have played with these models will have seen, right? There are lots of inaccuracies. There are lots of challenges with these outputs. And this is a fundamental challenge in the models. These models don't know how confident they are in an answer, how likely it is to be correct. And so in a use case where it's really hard to create something and you want to save a lot of time, but you know on the other side whether it is correct, then that's great, right? I want to, you know, generate an intro to a podcast and I kind of get a sense of whether it's good or not. You can do that, right? I want to use this to generate new climate legislation. Oh, you're probably going to have to pay a lawyer to look at it anyway. They're probably going to have to fix a lot with it. Maybe you didn't actually save time rather than maybe just getting the lawyer to do it in the first place. So this is kind of, a, I think, a really important model. Is it, again, saving, um, is it, it can, helping kind of cut down the creation process in settings where you can understand whether the output is actually correct and where it doesn't, in some sense, cost you more time than it would have to just do the thing yourself at that point? As I have watched this space unfold, um, outside of the climate space, I think most people in the tech industry have been pretty astonished, um, from what I can tell, at just how good these large language models are, just how good JetGPT is. And it's kicked off uh, you know, an extraordinarily fast arms race, a primarily commercial-driven arms race in, in AI, largely in generative AI. Um, but it's raising a lot of questions within companies about what kind of capabilities they need to have to understand this space, potentially use these tools, build these tools. Does this reshape the way both startups and legacy companies have to think about like building talent inside organizations? Yeah, your job isn't gonna be lost to AI, it's gonna be lost to someone who knows how to use AI, right? So you, you, you're gonna have to get proficient at this, right? And I think the, the appeal to me as someone who's been working in this space but is not a software engineer is that, not that I'm gonna suddenly become an amazing software engineer, but that I'm gonna be empowered to do things that otherwise I would have had to pay somebody who's really expert at this to do. Like it's gonna, it's gonna give me some capabilities that I didn't have. And I think that's very true for our companies where like today at a lot of our companies, a data scientist is one of the plum jobs, right? Like we have, you know, most of our companies are trying to take enormous amounts of data and drive something useful from it. And the big industrial customers are drowning in data. So all these machines are collecting all this data from all the sensors and they have access to this and they just don't know what to do with it. That's a theme like throughout all of our 
industries, you know, across energy, transportation, agriculture, the built environment. They're just drowning in data. So someone that can help them make sense of that is really, really valuable. And I don't think you have to be a PhD to be really good at that. I think you can graduate with some basic understanding of this and start to be really expert at the tools. And maybe you can do what a PhD was doing before because you're learning how to manipulate some of these tools. I think that's really exciting. Yeah, 100% agreed with that. And I think the other thing that's happening is because there's a lot more excitement around AI that's coming because of these tools, now all of a sudden other kinds of AI applications like the ones we've talked about are also kind of knocking on organizations' doors. Um, and so this question of uh, how do you, as an organization, if you're not an AI expert, how do you understand whether a use case is reasonable? If you're trying to operationalize AI within your organization, what kinds of people do you need, right? A data engineer is different than a data scientist and so forth. And so I think getting that literacy at a leadership level in terms of just what is AI, what kinds of changes may it create in my organization, and what kinds of skills and personnel and, and structures within the organization do I actually need in order to both you know, operationalize it and really responsibly understand what it might do into the organization, I think is an additional interest, important the data engineering is really key, Priya, because all these models are only as good as the quality of the data that they are using. If the data is garbage, the solutions are garbage. If the data is biased, the solutions are biased. So that, like, cleansing the data and bringing some real credibility and efficacy to the data is really, really critical. And that's going to be a very, very, very specialized role, for sure. And, and that's where, to me, so I'm... I'm pro using AI for the energy transition. It's awesome to hear both of you talk about it because you're so much closer to some of these solutions than I am. The only thing I get a little bit of a twitch about is like, it, you just said it, Amy, let's step back. We actually have a data management problem um, in a big section of the climate crisis right now on the grid side. And, and I'm a, you're probably coming through in this conversation, I'm a distributed energy resource geek. So if you want to talk batteries, heat pumps, electric vehicles, uh, solar, like I'm your guy. And if you look at all of those assets, so all of these small-scale assets, those are really going to be the future of how we balance the grid in the next 10 years. Uh, they're going to account for anywhere between like 30 and 50% of total system capacity. I mean, huge volumes of numbers of flexible load that can inject power, use power at different times. I live in California. I'm one of those customers. I have an electric vehicle. We have a heat pump. We have solar system. My utility has no idea I have those assets. They don't have the ability to collect data on them, let alone run some AI-based algorithm on them. So um, I, I think if we're talking about like digital literacy and AI literacy, I think it's also important to just recognize how analog a lot of our energy mm -hmm. systems are right now. And we need to solve that problem in addition to, okay, now let's layer some intelligence on top of it. Right. So we absolutely have to have a very strong digital layer in order to push forward the energy transition. But as you described, there's a, there are a lot of real physical limitations, limitations um, associated with uh, grid modeling, um, grid controls, uh, utility business models, uh, sales cycles for um, you know, integrating software, integrating new technologies. So like, this is a very slow process. And for many of the people in this room, you know, they're, they're probably often beating their head against the wall at how slow it can be. Um, so with that in mind, and given how fast a lot of these technologies are, are accelerating, what is something that you think will astonish us in the coming years? And what, is, what are maybe some of the physical limitations that you think potentially could hold these technologies back? Priya, do you want to start? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I'm excited to be astonished by is the capability of um, AI and machine learning uh, algorithms to um, enable kind of automatic optimization and control of electric power grids. I think that once we set up the correct infrastructure to enable that kind of thing, this is going to accelerate really quickly. And so this is things like um, controlling distributed devices on the power grid based on local sensor data or speeding up centralized optimization algorithms like unit commitment, you know, security constrained optimal power flow, the boring stuff nobody really talks about in ways that enable us to actually more dynamically optimize power grids. I think simultaneously there is, there is something really critical holding that back, which is that there aren't really good pathways to deployment for a lot of techniques, AI, machine learning, or otherwise, that are actually interacting with critical operations and, you know, critical um, functions on a power grid. And this is because, you know, we have historically not allowed for huge innovation on power grid optimization because we're worried about the power grid blacking out. And so really thinking about how do you create the correct simulators, test beds, metrics that are really agreed upon by practitioners, by the industry, and really create these pathways to deployment, as well as the kind of physical and digital infrastructure that are needed to test and evaluate and really understand what that pathway for deploying AI and machine learning looks like is going to be really critical. So I think if we can get that in place, I think we'll just be astonished by the extent to which AI and machine learning really enable us to manage these distributed renewable grids. But simultaneously, there's a big bottleneck that I think should be a huge priority to clear, which is establishing these pathways to deployment. Amy? I was trying to think of something. What would be astonishing? You set a very high bar. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm astonished. The jokes, the jokes are going to get a lot better. Okay, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Um, you know, I am astonished every day by the entrepreneurs that come and pitch us ideas, and they're incredible and creative and inventive. But I'm thinking, like, wow, what would blow my mind, you know? And so I think one of the areas um, is... Uh, all of this satellite data that we have right now that a lot of companies like Planet and others and Elon Musk have been, I think, um, trying to figure out, you know, how to monetize it and what to do with it. But I think that applied to so many different applications, especially in, in the field that I care about, which is climate, and thinking about it, you know, what can we track with all of this data in the oceans? You know, can we get underwater and track what's going on under the ocean uh, we don't know much about how the ocean, we, we're seeing the effects on the coral reef and other things, but like the ocean is this enormous resource. It's most of, um, you know, the earth. How, how can we use satellite data to do something really incredible that to, could give us some kind of great leap forward in relation to, to climate? Um, I think the, I'm sort of astonished. There was a company we talked to that I really liked and we didn't invest in because we are generally bearish about the carbon markets. But I think this is a really important um, area to get right and where the satellite data and all the imagery can really show that all this money that's being spent on carbon reductions is not enough, it's not working, it's not going to advance the solutions fast enough, and we're running out of time. And I think to your point of exposure, I think that could be very powerful. If we could get some better truth around that, and we're starting to see some of this crumbling now... Um, people are starting to expose it. But that, I think, is really important because we don't have time to goof it up. We, don't, we cannot wait a decade to mess this up, you guys. We have to get it right today. And we can't just sit around while the big emitters are going to spend a trillion dollars 
and carbon offsets to allow them time to keep polluting. Like this, that, ha- that can't happen. So maybe this ground source of truth that could come from the sky, from all the data that's being collected, could have some really important, you know, truth-telling. And I think that would be, that would blow my mind. I think one of the reasons it's a little bit tricky for me, at least, to talk about being astonished is because these large language models and the image creators and the DJ creators and stuff, it's so tangible. Everyone in this room can go on a computer and use it. A lot of the solutions, although not the one you just described, Amy, a lot of these solutions you just don't really see for the mm-hmm. energy sector. It's kind of behind the scenes. And if you're an energy geek, you'd be jumping up and down. Like, oh my God, we just created a digital twin for an entire country's distribution network. Yes! Who, who does that matter to, right? <laughs> so you got to be kind of a hardcore energy geek for some of these things to be astonishing. I would say, you asked also, Stephen, I think, what's going to slow it down? Institutional uh, friction. For, for a lot of these solutions, you've got to convince, not all of them, I mean, Climate Trace is an awesome example where we can just do that. We can take this top-down snapshot of climate emitters from around the world. But a lot of the business use cases, we've got to just do the hard work of, you know, uh, to the grindstone, convincing executives in organizations that are resistant to change, that are some of the most regulated entities in the world, to adopt new things. That's hard, right? Regardless if you're talking about AI, even if it solves problems for them. So I think just institutional friction is going to be the thing that slows it down, just like with any other innovative technology. Also, the people that have the most to lose, like these big emitters, like you guys, they're not, they're not sitting down. And we're seeing it come out right now with what some of the Republican states are doing to push back on the SEC disclosures. We're seeing, you know, the whole goofy narrative around the SVB crisis. You could, they're, they're, believe me, they're not doing everything that we want them to do right now. So that, and they have a major role to play. So they're going to be a big impediment. Definitely. Um, Okay, so we are nearing the close here, and I had drafted up one last prompt here to have a little bit of fun to close out our show. So I'm asking ChatGPT here. I put this in already when we were talking. Um, I want to play a game here to end the live episode. Can you please create a game called Real or Robot, tailored for each guest that creates a list of two fake items and one real item? For Priya, I want it to be a list of two fake research papers on AI and climate and one real one. For Amy, I want it to be two fake startups and one real one. And for Jesse, I want it to be two fake blockchain companies and one real one. Oh, God. Oh, no. Please make it a little silly so everyone thinks I'm funny. Okay. This is the result that we got back. Welcome to Real or Robot, where we try to fool the guests on stage. Priya Dante, are you ready? Let's go. Okay, this is the AI climate research paper edition. Number one, this singing climate model using AI to predict climate change through song. Number two, robo-penguins for Arctic climate monitoring. Number three, the climate-aware toaster, a machine learning approach to breakfast carbon footprints, which is the real one. (laughs) Man, I wish all of those existed. I'm going to go with ChatGPT hallucinated a bunch of papers. I think you're probably right. We have, to fact, we have to fact check this after. But it says the singing climate model using AI to predict climate change through song is the real one. I have no idea if that's real. But I think the hallucination problem is very real. Okay, Amy, Real or Robot, the AI climate startup edition. Startup number one, vegan bots. Plant-based food delivery by robots. 
electric sparks, AI-powered EV charging networks, or EcoPod, biodegradable coffee pods for a sustainable buzz. Okay, I think the last one is the real one, and I think the first two are the fake ones. No, ele- the AI-powered EV charging network, electric sparks, is supposedly real. I Again, we will fact-check that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jesse Morris, Real or Robot, the AI Climate Blockchain Company Edition. Number one. WhatsApp, the blockchain platform for sharing home solar energy. EcoCoin, the cryptocurrency for composting. The Crypto Climate Control Room, AI-powered climate management for your home. Oh, God, those all sounds like real pitches I've gotten. Yeah. <laughs> also, dude, I really want ChatGPT to be this startup naming service now. Yeah. Those are fantastic. <laughs> uh, EcoWatt has got to be real. Uh, do, uh, there was EcoCoin or WhatsApp? EcoCoin, EcoCoin. EcoCoin is fake, according to ChatGPT. It's WhatsApp, the, cha- the blockchain platform for sharing home solar energy. <laughs> Invest in that coin. <laughs> All right. No, don't, so, don't. I think we have come to a close. This has been a wonderful conversation. Let's please thank Priam and Amy and Jesse. Um, and I have... I have one final prompt that I put in. We need to close. ChatGPT, please write me a script closing the live show in the style of The Great Gatsby. Let's see what we've got here. And so the evening draws to a close, the clink of glasses and the murmur of conversation fading into the night. Our guests have enlightened us with their knowledge and expertise, shedding light on the powerful intersection of AI and climate solutions. As the green light of progress shines ever brighter on the horizon, we are reminded of the words of a certain Mr. Fitzgerald. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the future. For the sake of our planet and its people, may we continue to forge ahead, guided by the insights and inspiration shared here tonight. And so we bid you farewell with gratitude and hope for the journey ahead. Thanks, GPT. Thank you. That's going to do it for the show. I'm so thankful for everybody who came to watch the show. It was a completely packed house, I think, representative of how a lot of people are trying to figure this space out. And we are going to have a lot more conversations on how this particular slice of the climate tech market is shaping up. I think AI is going to be really transformative. And we also have some other live shows that we will be doing in the spring. So we'll announce those when those are coming. Uh, This episode was produced by me with help from Nicholas Rinaldi at Canary Media and Jill Fitzpatrick with Greentown Labs. Sean Marquan is our technical director. He also wrote our theme song. Original music came from Echo Finch, Epidemic Sounds, and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. That's our investor. They are a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing, and uh, AI as well. I ask you this every single time. I don't think I've ever gone an episode without asking this, and there's a reason. It's hugely helpful. Please give us a rating and a review on Apple or on Spotify. Other people do find the show that way. And even better, send a link to someone you know would like this show, a colleague, a friend. And when we have another live show, please bring them along. Thanks. 
for listening. Thanks to everyone who came to the show. I am Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. I'll catch you next week.